drive-by cinema. Three nachos and a foaming thermos of fun. Hello and welcome. This is Drive-By Cinema. It's season three, episode 40-40. Paul with his convincing round of applause <laughs> sound effect, his foley. Do you think they ever had plants in the Friends audience? Like people laughing to help, to help other people, ease other people into the laughing? Wasn't it all canned, Friends? Canned Was it all canned? I would assume so. I'm Rick. Welcome I'm to Paul. the podcast where we watch the movies so you don't have to. And yeah. we also correct our previous podcast episodes. I think we that we typically make. Yeah. We sort of audit ourselves, self-auditing. We're like dentists that sell sugary ice creams at the airport. Yeah. What? At the airport? Yeah. Oh, dent- dentists do that at the airport, do they? they to yeah, supplement they, their income. Supplement their income, you know, make sure uh-huh. people get cavities. Yeah. Uh-huh. What is the dentist word for cavities? That's a stochastic or thermodynamic uh, idea of evil, isn't it, really? Sorry, go on. Dentists have a word for cavities, I think. They do, don't they? What is it? Don't know. I think, I stand to be correct, this is a future correction, I think it's caries. It is is caries, yeah. I wonder why. It's a weird word, isn't it? And nobody else ever uses it. I've never heard it, except from dentists. But then biologists call the passageway in your blood vessels lumens rather than passageways. So, Lumens? Lumens, yeah. Um, okay. But passageway would be a strange word to use for a biological... Well, throughway. Throughway. Okay. Paul, do you have anything from previous weeks to discuss? <laughs> anything we... I was interested in the question on the weary side that came with it. I don't know, Richard. Should I have anything? Are you asking to empty my pockets? Listen, I want to go back again. Oh, right, here we go. Third time or second time now to do oh, no. Apple products. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't mind that. I, I don't know, mind I'm trashing shitty Apple, Apple products. When we discussed the Newton, and you yeah, said something said like, you said the compact iPad and stuff. Yeah. Now, I just want to be clear, and the uh-huh. reason why I was defending the Newton is because the Newton was way before all those products. Well, slow down, slow down, slow down, slow, slow down, slow down. I mean, the Compaq, the, the idea of a portable small laptop from Compaq was early on, Richard. Mid-80s. Not a handheld pocket PC version. Oh, I know. oh right, of, yeah, of, of course, of course, of course, yeah. yeah. They were just laptops, basically. So the, the Newton was, I think, 92, 93? Yeah, and groundbreaking. The Palm Pilot, the Palm Pilot was not until about 97. Correct. I do remember a mutual friend of them brought one to a, another mutual friend's wedding and was showing off his Palm Pilot. But the Palm Pilot, although you could write on it, it yeah. had its own script. And you wrote in a little box at the bottom of the screen with a stylus. Sorry, I'm cocking my head like a Labrador to this knowledge. And so you had to learn a new alphabet to use the Palm Pilot. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it was quite simple. It was just like one stroke. So an A would have no cross piece. It would just be, and you had to start at the bottom left and go straight up, straight down. <laughs> kind of like a, a, a byte code kind of shorthand. Is that right, yeah? It's, it's like, yeah. Like it's a shorthand, shorthand but, yeah, but for yeah. computers. Although the Palm Pilot exploded. I mean, I had several. I mean, I always loved the idea of a PDA. Mm-hmm. The word PDA itself was coined for the Newton five years earlier. But, you know, up until the Palm Pilot, you know, nothing really realized the dream. Yeah. Admittedly, the Palm Pilot was a good deal smaller than you, let's face it. But they were quite cute, weren't they? Did you never have a Palm Pilot? 
No, I bought an Oliveto Quaderno. I bought the first first miniature laptop. Ah, uh, I think I remember those. Yeah, yeah. yeah it was useless. <laughs> it's all right for Solitaire and Minesweeper. It was all right for writing. It's all right as you know as, as a decent word processor. You could you know you couldn't re- you could actually load up Windows Word in it. Uh, sorry, Microsoft Word, but it was just better to do it in Notepad, save it on a floppy disk, and then you know process afterwards. But yeah, and it had a beautiful little uh, voice recorder that could record up to 60 minutes of notes, you know. It was kind of like a, a, a little vanity project, I guess, for for stylish Italian businessmen to, you know, record notes to their secretaries and that kind of thing. But not particularly useful to a computer. Up to 60 minutes, Paul. Wow, it couldn't even do one of our podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> In a sense, I think, for the time, quite advanced. Oh. And probably a nice little thing to have around. It did have a calendar, you know, blah, 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 built in. And, of course, if you're downloading Microsoft Word, I think 3.1, the graphic, the uh, GUI-based uh, iconographic Word, excuse me, what am I saying? Office had just come out, hadn't it? Okay. But, yeah, so UX wasn't really... They never really did proper UX, did they? I think any short motion, time motion study customers would realise they didn't want to learn a computerised shorthand, and that would be a serious <laughs> impediment to them. Buying the product ever again, yeah. It was easier than it sounds. I mean, it wasn't like learning Klingon or or Chinese, for that matter. Uh, You know, it was very closely related to the Latin alphabet. Because I was reading the other day about UX and how UX helped McDonald's. I mean, the McDonald's were doing their own UX in terms of milkshakes. They were surprised to find out they'd done some studies. 80% of their milkshakes were bought before 8.30 in the morning. And they were perplexed by this. And And they tried to do UX the traditional way, which is focus groups. And this guy and his Ted Star talk sounds a very dangerous thing to do because what you get if you ask customers what they want, you end up with, uh, you know, a roast chicken on one half of pizza and Skittles on the other side kind of thing. They don't know what they want and what they want isn't right. Roast chicken uh, and Skittle pizza. Hmm. Yeah, what he's saying is, you know, they have various and somewhat illogical ideas of what Contradictory. they want. Contradictory. Yeah. And they don't even know what they want sometimes and not in the combination that will make a decent product. Uh, so he's saying, you know, Bowman's Sometimes they want a Pizza Hut, sometimes they want a Taco Bell. Taco Bell, yeah. Sometimes they uh, want a combination yeah. Pizza Hut. <laughs> well, it could be Bell. better, you know. Uh, so he was saying, you know, by always do focus groups, but do them on the back of other systematic UX work. And what, he, what his company found out was that people were buying milkshakes instead of a bagel because bagels were faffy, didn't really work as a product, uh, whereas milkshakes were great as a breakfast material because... They were so slow, it would take you. You could keep them till elevenses and use them as a whole filler through the morning, kind of thing. Uh, wow. Once, once McDonald's were told this and focused their sales by making the milkshakes even thicker and slower to drink, etc., and you know, and putting sprinkles in to make them like bagley or donut esque, they got seven x sales. You know, so. But then they invented the idea of the milkshake machine being out of action all the time. True. But I think that's where the Oreo Crunchy thing comes on, is, it, is to make it more like a donut experience, you see, as well. Huh. So that's what came off the back of it, with those flurries, yeah, McFlurries. Okay. Which, again, apparently, often people use as an extended brunch. Sorry, uh, uh, extended, yeah, extended brunch. We also, Paul, now, have, of course, have got a king again, finally. After we have. Several what a weekend. Months- of what I'm going to call an interregnum, because <laughs> not a lot of people know well, we didn't have a king until he was crowned. Until well, he was it showed, I think it showed in the whole function of this country, didn't it? We right? were an anarchy, technically an anarchy. Wow. All laws were suspended. I didn't in- tell. Not the law that. to arrest protesters. Interestingly, that, that law still functioned, didn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I know. I think they waited until the moment he was crowned, 
and then they pounced, didn't they? Swoops in. Yeah. As soon as the law was enacted again, you know, enacted. Enact- How dare you disturb other people's days by just shouting out? You know, yeah, obviously, obviously, going to upset people, isn't it? Um, a lot of people say we probably won't see another coronation in our lifetime. I'm not so sure about that, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I do like. I love like really chintzy memorabilia so i i have a soft oh, well. spot for that aspect of it well there's plenty of that going around plenty of that yeah but i mean he's gonna live a long time isn't he charles a man who who clearly has some kind of blood pressure or heart disease in evidence and yeah, already yeah. he's a big believer in homeopathy those royal homeopaths are gonna keep him <laughs> keep him alive i didn't catch much of it i did catch some 15 minutes summary of, of, of an old sort of chariot going down the streets. Somebody lip-reading him, and he's saying, why am I so old? What is this going to all end? Kind of thing. And then somebody lip-reading little little kid on the balcony. Uh, I saw that bit. It was charming. Wasn't it wonderful? Wasn't it amazing? You know, just all this unctuous talk about it. And then there was some weird concert from his garden in Windsor. I didn't see that. I did, I I did see the that. ceremony itself. It was incredibly gaudy. And by which I mean what I mean is Church of Englandy. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They yeah. went on and on about the establishment of the Church of, Church of England. It's just a kind of a relic Free advert, of an ossified, really. you know, uh, the ossified idea of the power of the church in British society is like on full display there. Never have they felt more irrelevant, really, the church. But though, having said that, I have heard it said that the reason why, like in the US, of course, they have separation of church and state. Yes. In their constitution, written in there. But I have heard it said that, you know, one of the reasons why religious right has got such a stranglehold on American politics is because they don't have an established religion. Whereas we've got sort of established but very tame and toothless British tea and tea and crumpets kind of church. Because in the States they've had this freedom sort of free market economy of all these different sects of Christianity, you know, the Snake handlers and yeah, I mean our, our church leaders—they're all sort of uh, grey-haired, sort of short back and side men who look like they would be concerned about if they paid their parking ticket correctly. <laughs> they kind of—it's kind of there's a slightly angry, quizzical demeanor to them all, particularly Justin at the moment. You know, he's, he's, they're, they're establishment, aren't they? They're full the of people that were right to the paper angrily. You know. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, it, it interesting. You're saying, you know, the better the devil, you know, kind of like to inculcate or to bring in that threat to state. It's and tamed, Sanitise it? it, yeah, sanitise it. It's been tamed it, since since another king decided he wanted to get a divorce and the Catholic Church wouldn't let him. So he invented a new church that he could just put in a box and it's been there ever since. I think that's the theory. The other interesting thing was Penny Mordaunt. I don't know if she's some sort of person that had to hold a sword up at three and a half kilograms for 30 minutes. And I read an interesting article where a Guardian journalist tried to imitate the same thing by sticking uh, no, uh, a tall stick in a three-litre jug of water. She said it was actually really, really difficult to do. So Penny reclaimed her social media credit, so to speak. Whether you want to do that or not is a different matter. But because 10 years ago she belly-flopped in the uh, in the reality TV show where where the British diving star, I don't know what it's called, taught people to dive. Tom Daly, is it? Tom Daly, yeah, yeah. She had a horrendous back belly flop uh, and was thrown, <laughs> off, thrown, off the, uh, thrown off the TV show with us or Tommy. Oh dear, you, should, well, you shouldn't laugh, should you? <laughs> Man, if you're going to go on that programme, you deserve what you get. Hey Paul, let's talk about yeah. a movie after a little bit of music. Yes, let's do that. Pow.
You said that you didn't know. You, you're not very good at remembering actors' names. No, I was suggesting we should have a Dewey Decimal System for actors and movies. But surely you know the star of this film that we saw. I've never really... I mean, when I say I've never played Dungeons & Dragons, and I have done. And I say I've never watched Breaking Bad. I have watched Breaking Bad, okay? Ah. But, but maybe not enough not, to have seen... Not in any shape or form where I was paying Saul attention. Goodman, the character he plays. And the spin-off series, Better Called Saul. Better Called Saul. I've seen an episode or two of that. Not his only work, of course, but perhaps his most famous, Bob Odenkirk. Very uh-huh. popular in Breaking Bad. So much so that they gave him a spin-off series. And here he is now. And this movie was his idea, apparently. Whoa! Oh, I really should have read my Wikipedia this week, shouldn't I, Richard? As we know, and as we've discussed, you're research. the one who checks Wikipedia. <laughs> I look at IMDb. That's the division of labour. We never talked about it. It's just what happened. It's organic. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, I recognised him because you told me about it. But I recognised the guy who plays his dad as being somebody very famous, but I can't remember his That's name. That's Christopher Lloyd, of course, from Back Who's to the been Future in fame. Back to the Future. Great Scott. <laughs> oh God, I knew it was something. Wow. Okay, so minus the hair. Okay. Hey, there's a lot of big names in this. His, yeah. His, I think it's his his wife's father is played by Michael Ironside. Whoa. Looking considerably older than you might remember him. Yeah. So the name of this film is... It isn't Mr. Nobody, but it is Nobody. Nobody. Yes. Yeah. 2021, I'm going to guess. It's recent, I think. It's very recent. It is, it is really recent, yeah. 21, yeah. It is 21. Of course, it must have been that time because it was supposed to get released in theatres. In the cinema, did do. but it never did. So now it's a Netflix film. It is, but it was released on some other platform to make money. And incredibly, it was budgeted about 18 million... And it made about 50 or 60 million uh, on subscription. So, really well done. We start the movie at the end of the movie. Our hero, as it were, played by Bob. Slumped against a wall. He's sitting in handcuffs in an interview room. I think we conclude it's an interview room. Although it's not obvious. Because I don't think normally they would let you carry a kitten into an interview room. And open a can of cat food or tuna or something in the interview. But that's exactly what he does. At some point they ask him, who the fuck are you? And he's he nobody. Me. Well, he doesn't say it. That would be cheesy, Paul, at the start of the film. It would be cheesy. He says, me, I'm dot, dot, dot. He now goes into a kind of flashback where we see right. his ordinary quotidian life, don't we? So that would be cheesy the way I've done it. I'm only saying that because uh, the recent uh, James Bond movie we watched, right? Right. Uh, it starts off and he says, oh, don't worry, we have all the time in the world. And then they play, the we have all the time in the world, which I thought was just incredibly cheesy and just not James Bond at all. No, it's not that James Bond, is it? Because Ian Fleming was fond of putting some really strange, Links whimsical in. Yeah. titles in the chapters, which is where most of the most of the names of Bond films came from chapters in yeah. Bond wow. books, I think. I think that's right. I've not really read Ian Fleming, though. I don't think it's very progressive text. <laughs> Yeah, so now we get the Groundhog Day montage. And I was thinking, oh my God, we've had so many Groundhog Day, particularly time travel Groundhog Day montages in recent films. And I was trying to think, what were they? The classic time travel one, which name escapes me, Primer. Yeah. Primer, yes. And then something about a high school student or a college student who gets pursued by a madman. Happy uh, Death Day. Happy Death Day. And there's another one. We read, did three in sequence where there was some sort of time travel... 
Time lapse, um, maybe? Time lapse, yeah. Repeating of events. But that's not what happens here. We just get a quick montage of his repetitive dead alive involving... Yeah, thanks for that excursion into time travel movies for the last month. It's nothing to do with time travel at all. I know. It's just a memory. He's just recounting. I'm just just talking to myself here. Sure. It's it's non-linear storytelling. (laughs) I agree. Go go and talk to Quentin Tarantino all about this technique. Yeah. Okay, Quentin, yeah, okay. I was, I was going to mention Quentin, but not at the oh, moment. We'll leave it till oh, later. Flash forward. <laughs> so, sorry, I'll stop, I'll stop rabbiting on. Uh, I'll try to stop rabbiting on. Right, okay, so he t- he, he, every week is the same. It's a rather dull life, and he fails to take out the bins every week on a Tuesday or Thursday. I can't remember which it is. Tuesday is bin day, Paul. Tuesday. You watch this movie, and amazingly, you know the bin day of another person in another part of the world. I don't know my own bin day, though. It's exactly, just... I don't know my own bin day. <laughs> then again, I live in an apartment block, and that's all handled. Richard has a rubbish chute. It's not that bad. And he's never put animals down it. I don't have any animals put down it anymore. Have you put marbles <laughs> down and stuff like that? You seem more fascinated by, than, this, but, than you have any right to be. I mean, what do you think would happen if you put a marble down it? Well, is it a sheer drop, or...? Yes, it's a sheer drop, yeah. Is it big enough for people to get in? <laughs> it has a special door on it. So you pull a, a hinged door downwards. Oh. And then you put the thing in and then you close it and then it drops. But it, yes, it is a sheer drop. And when you're standing in the little room, you're standing on a grill that looks down on another room with a grill, which looks down on another room with a grill. So you could see all the way down. Whoa. In my case, all six floors down, you can see all the way. Because it's that YouTube, famous YouTube video where there's two teenage, teenagers in Switzerland jump into the underground bin, don't they, and get trapped. Oh, my God. Oh my yeah, it's God. terrifying. It sounds like... Someone, did somebody die? Are you talking about an actual death? Yeah. Is, it, is it a snuff movie or describing? No, it's not snuff, but it is fairly terrifying because you don't find out what happens to them. Oh, gosh. Yeah, yeah. Don't get in bins. Now, he goes about his day. Yeah. What His job is what, Paul? Oh, he's some sort of... Uh... Well, he's working for his in-laws, sort of little manufacturing, manufacturing factory, light factory, engineering, yeah, yeah. Yeah. light engineering, called Williams, I think. That's some sort of manager, or some sort of overseer. And he keeps working out by doing pull-ups on a bus stop with yeah. a poster of a woman who I thought was maybe his wife, but I maybe got that confused. Ah. This wouldn't make any sense. Who was she? Like local politician, maybe. So he's got a bus card. He travels to work by bus. You know, very parsimonious life. Yeah. Makes coffee in the morning and misses the bins every Tuesday. <laughs> but he's awoken one night by yes. home invaders. Oh. Two people in balaclavas come in. One of them is carrying a revolver. He arms himself. He comes downstairs. He's disturbed. He arms himself with a golf club. And he's confronted by what's obviously a woman in a balaclava mm. holding the gun in his face. She takes his watch. And whilst she's doing that, she's, he spots a tattoo on her wrist, mm-hmm. which was distinctive enough that he remembers this. Her husband grabs the cash, what little cash was in the house, from the cash dish on the table, inadvertently takes his daughter's little Hello Kitty bracelet or some sort of little kitty bracelet at the same A cat bracelet, yes. A cat bracelet, yeah. And then his son, who's a teenage son, you know, I guess for 15, 16 or something, comes down the stairs and tackles the male uh, intruder... Quite successfully. ...to the ground. And while the woman is going to the aid of her accomplice, our guy, who's called Hutch, by the way, comes up behind the woman with his golf club and he's ready to hit her. Uh, but for various reasons, Mercy, you might think, 
you know, the fact that she's a woman and the fact these people are clearly desperate for a small amount of cash, he decides just to let, let it go, go. Mm. you know, get up and get out of here kind of thing. Which, Much by the, the way, shame and disapproval of his son. Yeah, his son is pissed off because he thinks he had a kind of thing. As is everybody else who hears the story. The cops interview them shortly afterwards. One cop says he did the right thing. The other cop says, if it was me, I would have had a go. I think... As does his brother-in-law. He says, look, you've got to start taking after my sister. Okay, here's a gun. Force it in his hand. He's also humiliated by the fact they got him by the pizza box car garage door trap. What is that? Sounds like well, you know it. as you're driving your car in, you're heading to heading to your home from your garage. Okay, you yeah. press the electric uh, buzzer uh, to close your garage door, and they stick a pizza box underneath. I didn't, I didn't know that. So he's humiliated. This might be a trigger of him to take up ways that he thought he put to bed many years ago. But listen, he did the right thing. Right? You don't go, you don't go crippling someone for breaking into your property. And well, unless they're threatening you with your life. Absolutely. Well, I suppose you could argue that they were. We'll come back to that later, won't we? They were holding a gun to his son's head. It's just money. It's just, you know, a watch. You get it replaced on insurance, don't you? You shouldn't be hitting people. Obviously, defend yourself. Defend your your own welfare. There's a lot of have-a-go heroes, you know, talking up what he should have done. The reason that Bob Odenkirk wanted to make this film is he was the victim of a home invasion. Ah. And he sort of had these fantasies about what he could have done if he, he was a badass. I see. That's a sort of self ins an author insert kind of thing going on here, isn't it? In the morning, he's feeling kind of emasculated, as you say. His kid, I think he's talking about this project he's going to do where he has to interview a veteran. Presumably, they mean a military veteran. And he says, Dad, can I interview you? So we get this backstory. We get a suggestion of backstory served in the military. He says, oh, it's just an auditor. An auditor, yeah. Not very interesting. Anything heavy. Yeah. What about your granddad? His mum says you, could, you should talk to your uncle, the, the guy who gave him, him a gun at work, because he was a proper soldier. And then she kind of apologises to her husband. And says, oh, I've taken your coffee here. Have your coffee. Get off to work. Right. And then he returns back to his sort of daily life, doesn't he? His daily ground. He does, yeah. What's the trigger where he decides to go and find the people that broke into his house? The, uh, one strange thing that happened, apart from his brother-in-law giving him a semi-automatic which he puts in the freezer of the office because he doesn't really want it, apparently. He also has a ham radio in his office and he switches it on and tunes to his usual channel. And someone in there, I think he's playing like a jazz trumpet or something. Yeah. He then starts speaking to this guy and conversing with him. They seem to know each other. Interestingly, he they weren't keying the mic and going over, you know, or anything, were they? They were... They no. were just speaking like normally, and I didn't know you could do that. I thought I didn't think radio communications were duplex that way, but maybe I don't know much about ham radio. I think he's explained the situation to this guy. This guy already knew about it through the grapevine somehow, and he's telling him, you know, not to get involved, not to do anything silly. But he says to him that he saw in the revolver the woman was holding that it was empty. All the chambers were empty. Mm further explaining why he didn't hit her. So it's an important point, Paul. I just thought we should pause and reflect on that, you know, yeah. before you hurried along to the next part of the movie. No, no. <laughs> I just I want to know when did he decide to become proactively vigilante about this? Oh, I can explain. Yeah, his his daughter is upset because she can't about find the chain the that's bracelet. it. Yeah, he's that's that's what makes him snap. It's that, you know, his daughter who's the only one who believed in him. When when his son was disappointed and his wife seemed disappointed with him, 
his daughter was like still cuddling up to him, saying that she felt safe with him on the sofa, wasn't she? Yeah. But now she can't find a cat bracelet. She's a bit upset. That's what makes him snap. So he goes to his dad, who is in a care home. Now, apparently his dad used to be in the FBI. Yeah, still got his old uh, badge. So he takes the badge, and he's still got a service revolver. So he takes that as well. And a jacket too. And a ja- yeah, jacket. He has clothes there. Yeah. So he puts on his or his dad's jacket, not clear which, and he goes around tattoo parlours very cleverly, flashing his fake FBI card and also flashing a picture of the tattoo Comparing it to the flash of all the tattoo artists. That's what they call it, isn't it? Huh. Isn't it? Tattoo artists call their designs flash, right? Flash, yeah. yeah. That's right. So I was making a clever wordplay, which you failed to acknowledge. Oh, yeah. Okay, so he goes to two or three tattoo parlours late at night in driving rain. Gets to what is obviously going to be the one uh, that knows something about it because they're all edgy. And there's uh, It's hoodlums. like a biker gang kind of tattoo. Yeah, place, there's hoodlums hanging around, some heavies hanging around. There's probably weapons on the door. And there's an old sort of long-haired vet there who's probably still on a bad trip. Who's like, uh, you come in this place asking for trouble kind of stuff. And as he's gesticulating, our guy Hutch shows a tattoo on his own wrist, okay, which the veteran recognises as being obviously an elite commando tattoo. He probably runs into the safe room and locks himself in quite comically with about eight or ten locks on the door and says, you guys uh, deal with it yourself. This is the first hint we get that Hutch is not really all he seems, is he? He's not just a nobody. uh... He sees a picture of the exact tattoo on the desk at this tattoo parlour. So he knows he's hit the lodestone. So where does he go? Well, it's kind of cut short, but it's obvious that they're giving the information about where to find this couple. So he goes over to the house and uh, seeks to get the kitty chain back. Yeah, he finds this couple. He he goes straight in there, straight to the point. He gets his watch back off the girl, but the guy doesn't really know where the where the little bracelet is. And as this thing is happening, he hears a baby crying in another room. He goes and have a look, has a look, and there's a young kid there, clearly with some disease, because it's got like a oxygen mask on, doesn't it? Yeah, so they're robbing to help the kids. Yeah, imagine the medical bills they're having to face. He takes pity on them and he goes, he leaves them all. He's got his watch back, so really he's got the main stuff back. Isn't he? He's headed back on the bus, isn't he? He travels on the bus all the time, doesn't he? Yeah. So he goes back on the night bus, like the 192 to Stockport from Manchester. On the bus, there's like a young girl, sort of teenage girl, sitting there, minding her own business. And him at the back. And a guy reading a book. As they're driving along, some kind of, is it a Humvee or something? Some big Yeah, car. a party Humvee. They just slam into a concrete bollard, don't they, for fun? Or maybe because they're high. Clearly yeah. drunk drivers kind of thing. Yeah. And a bunch of uh, what we learn are Russian kind of gangsters sort of pile out, get onto the bus because they've sort of crashed at the bus stop. Bus driver jumps off the bus. And as they start making lewd comments to the girl, he uses this as a very false pretext to beat them up. So he tells the bus driver to get off the bus, turns around, and kind of Armageddon breaks loose, doesn't he? He's like, come on, have a go at me. (laughs) And uh, it's an amazing fight scene. It is. It is a great fight scene. Apparently, Bob Odenkirk trained to do all of this stuff himself. It's so gritty. There are so many broken, spitted, spitted teeth. Even him himself. Like he he like takes a few shots, gets stabbed with a knife, pulls it out and starts stabbing them with it. He hits his head on one of the 
yellow bars in the bus. And then in the end, he uses one of those yellow oh, bars. Oh, fabulous end, rips yeah. it out. I think, you know, the climax, <laughs> ripping it out and just whacking people with it is uh, it's pretty pretty amazing. He fucks them up with a seatbelt that he wraps around his hand, a bag strap of a bag someone has left, the knife he was stabbed with himself that he stabs one guy with, the pole of the bus, which he hits <laughs> one guy in the throat, and that guy's lying there, unable to breathe suddenly. Yeah. And he does an emergency tracheotomy on him with a knife and a straw from fast food drink cup. As we lay loaded, this guy's very well connected to the guy he's just given a tracheotomy to. He gets back, his wife is still awake when he returns. And she eventually notices that he's covered in knife, <laughs> knife wounds and bruises and scratches. So she super glues his knife wound closed. Which I've got to say... Although I know that's what superglue was used for during the Vietnam War, I don't think... I think it's more of an emergency thing, isn't it? Rather than a... Cosmetic do. thing, yeah. <laughs> Still, there we go. And now we get a caption, for some reason. Don't know why. I suppose we're introducing a brand new character, maybe. Yulian. Yeah. And we see more dangerous driving in the streets as some kind of like Range Rover or something. Arrives at a nightclub and this guy gets out. He plays the chicken frogger thing where you just walk across the road and cars stop for you. <laughs> he goes into a nightclub which presumably he owns. Yeah, something like that. Or he's protected. You tell me, Paul, you've owned nightclubs. When you went into your nightclub, did the barman automatically have a shot on the bar for you? Did the, the crowd uh, part? You take a shot. No, but uh, the, the bar owner down from my other business... Uh, used to come to our nightclub for free. So when I used to walk in there, they used to serve flaming cocktails to us. <laughs> right. Yeah. And did you ever jump up on the stage and do a quick number and a dance routine with the singer? Jumped up and led the hordes to a New Year New Year dance, I think. Oh, that's nice. Nice. So, yeah, he walks in, in kind of a very flouncy kind of... Uh, a flowered dress, doesn't he? And starts dancing with the singer and takes over the song and is met with rapturous applause too. He's in a, a flowery suit, not yeah. a flowered dress. Oh, I see you mean dress. He's His dress was flowery. He's dressed flamboyantly, shall we say. His dress. His way of dressing. His fit. His fit is quite... Dress big. is the word, Richard. The way he dresses is called dress. <laughs> okay. Well, okay. Now, Paul, you studied Russian, as I recall, at A-level. Yeah. Did you not? No. So... The next section... I studied, I studied a bit of Russian. Exactly. Well, AS level. I'm, I'm not wrong. So, the next bit of Russian dialogue, which was not subtitled, <laughs> I presume you could Did translate... Did I, I... Well, look, I, I thought, wait a minute, there's no subtitles. Because about three minutes, I thought, are we supposed to be following what they're saying? I thought, well, it's been three minutes. Because sometimes if it's like a few seconds... Uh, and you, you're looking at the perspective of, you know, the lead character. You're not, if you're in a foreign country, you're not supposed to understand what's going on. They're not going to subtitle it for you, are they? It's going to be the noise of another country. Yeah. Uh, but this was three or four minutes, wasn't it? So I did have to stop, go back, and put the subtitles on you. Yeah. All oh, right, you cheated. I like that it's not spoon feeding us. I like that they're saying that to understand everything in this movie, you're going to have to learn a bit of Russian. <laughs> Were the subtitles in English, or did it come up with Cyrillic script? <laughs> the subtitles—you didn't get the backstory to the black guy. Um, it was all in Russian. I, I know he's mentioned later when, spoiler alert, there's a car crash and Hutch asks him, "You know, you don't get many black Russians," which I think is a funny line in and of itself. But he says, "Yeah, you get—I get that a lot." And I read on IMDb that during the Olympics, 
a load of people came over to Moscow. Ethiopian runners. There were a load of babies created in Moscow. There were, yeah. So you could get all these black Russians. Is that he was, aban- the he ba- was abandoned and bitter, yeah. So in the bar, you know, in the nightclub, that's the story we get off him. You know, all the other hen- henchmen are like saying, who's this black dude? You know, Julian, what are you dragging a black dude around for? And he's like, actually, this guy speaks better Russian than a lot of you. And then we get the backstory from the black guy himself. It's like, you know, my dad was an Ethiopian who abandoned me in Russia. Uh, blah, 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 blah. Well, that's amazing. I don't know how all of that came out in a scene which, to someone who doesn't speak Russian, is mostly Russian-speaking and then this guy, Julian, breaking a stem glass and slitting some big guy's throat <laughs> with it in front of... I think it was done as a sort of mark of his dominance, wasn't it? It was. He was like... Well, what was happening? They were, they were all saying, look, Julian, you can't come and protect our business in a flowery, flowery shirt and dancing... Like, oh. like an idiot. And he said, well, what's this then? It was good old-fashioned Russian homophobia. Yeah, a bit racist, a bit homophobia. So he said, well, watch this then. And then he proceeds to kill someone with a glass. Right. Like, you do know who that was, don't you? And this is the funniest part of the movie. He's like, no, it's like, that's one of our shareholders. He owns 3% this business. And then they all look sternly at each other and they raise glasses and say, ah, oh, well, we're all 3% richer now. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's quite funny. Uh, but you missed all that because you didn't turn on the subtitles. There's an ineluctable logic to where to the end point of that, though, isn't there? I mean, why don't they all kill one another and make the last one standing this... be the richest of all, wouldn't they? Honor among thieves, you know. I mean, this is it, isn't it? This is the whole story of this movie, really. It's violence begets violence, isn't it? As soon mm-hmm. as you start, there's always someone bigger than you. And you never know who you're messing with. That's the other important thing that this movie is portraying, really. You start on somebody, you don't know that they're not a veteran from a three-letter agency trained to kill with a biro kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Could happen, right? It could. Anyway, Julian gets a call while he's... What a way to go if it did happen, though, eh? What a way? What, what being killed by um by a, a broken glass, or...? No, a biro. Oh, I see. So, I mean, that, that's it. I mean, does he storm out? I can't remember what happens now. He gets a phone call. He's being told that what we learn is his brother is in hospital, is in intensive care. That's the guy who got the tracheotomy. So he's like, one of the guys on the bus. Yeah, the guy who had the tracheotomy. Yeah, yeah. Julian is furious. He, he goes into one of the hospital rooms with a chair and he chucks it at one of the other gang guys who's also mm-hmm. in hospital because they're all in hospital. And, you know, he starts threatening them all and getting the Julian information. doesn't respect his younger brother. He thinks he's a bit of a wastrel. How do you know that? Did he say that? Was yeah. that something else in yeah. Russian? Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> he says, you know, but family's family. You know, I've got to stick up for this guy, whether or not I like him. Ah. The guys just explain it was one guy who beat them all up and he's obviously, you know, incre- incredulous about it. But then one of the goons, despite the fact he's in hospital and in, you know, traction or something, <laughs> he holds up a Metro card that had been dropped. Yeah. So I suppose they're like Oyster cards. Presumably they're registered to the holder, to the address of the person who bought it. Julian gets one of his uh, attractive female lackeys, who's an expert in IT, to dig and find out who this is. She's got contacts in the CIA or FBI. And they've got compromat on this contact in yes. this three-letter agency. So she's sending them pictures of, to be honest, pretty tame like BDSM scenes. Yes, yeah. I'm not sure if you say I'm going to show my wife that, that I'd actually care, do you know what I mean? Yeah, no, exactly, yeah. If it comes to a matter of national security, it'd be like, yeah, sure, tell her. Yeah, Maybe it's time the marriage was over if she's going to react like that, do you know what I mean? Exactly, she should be getting involved. 
for the nas- the sake of national secrecy, if nothing else, she should be getting. She should be uh, his his dom. Shouldn't it? Turns out this guy, who we know as Hutch, initially he tries to get his file online and it's access denied. So he has to go and get the paper file. Got in the vaults, yeah. And when he does, and when he sends it to this Russian IT lady who's got the compliment, <laughs> she immediately quits. She doesn't lock herself behind doors, but she might as well have done. Yeah, so she, it's the same comical reaction to the knowledge that he is a an auditor. An auditor. So what we learn is that an auditor is actually the guy that the CIA or the FBI or whoever send in to clean up messes. And as he says, he can't arrest anybody. He just has to make sure that there are no witnesses. No trace remains, yeah. Meanwhile, he's making happy breakfast now because he's reclaimed his masculinity, I suppose. He gets another call. Well, he gets a call on his telephone, on his landline, from his radio ham guy, even though he told him, presumably he's told him never to call him on his uh, landline, who is warning him about Yulia now chasing him. And he then gets a text to go and see his barber, who obviously is not really just a hairdresser. And he goes to see... A guy being played by Colin Salmon, I think he's an English actor, uh, who tells him that he's in a bit of trouble and tells him all about who Yulia is. Apparently he's a caretaker of dirty Russian money. All the Russian mafia money. They pool it and move it around periodically to avoid, you know, transactional detection. detection. They call it obshak, I think. Obshak, yeah. I don't know what that means, but that's the word that gets used. It's said on IMDb... That this is quite realistic. Yeah. Uh, this structure about how the Russian mafia and the oligarchs structure their, their money. Okay. Obviously, we know what's going to happen here. Yulia knows where this guy lives, where Hutch lives. But Hutch has got forewarning, yeah. He's got a bit of warning. He sees out of the window all these big cars arriving outside his house. He, he kills the lights. And he hustles his family into a basement and pulls a little panel off the wall and presses a button and, like, you know, a secure vault door comes down to keep them safe. And he tells his wife not to call 911. And then he goes about killing or attempting to kill all of the Russian goons. And we get this second fairly amazing action sequence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is, you know, there's too much detail, detail to describe, but there's lots of nice fight, fight moments. He puts a four of them down, I think, but he does get captured eventually who drag him off, put him in the boot of the car. He gets tased, doesn't he? He gets tased, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. They put him handcuffed into the trunk or boot of a car. So because they put him handcuffed, they haven't disabled the inner emergency open latch. Maybe they didn't think of it, Paul. Maybe they're used to old-fashioned cars, or cars in Russian. In Russia. <laughs> the Volga or the Lager, yeah. Thankfully, due to European safety regulations, all modern cars have to have a glow-in-the-dark, I think, uh, safety release in the boot so that you can get out if you have to. That could save your life one day, Paul. Remember that. With his broken hands, he manages to slip. Oh, no. He dislocates his thumb, doesn't oh, he, to get, get out of the handcuffs. Yeah. I see. And then he opens the boot, but they're moving too quickly. He can't jump out. So he opens a side panel, gets out a fire extinguisher, because he's in quite a posh car. Knocks out the Black Russian in the meantime by pushing the seat forward. And lets off the fire extinguisher. Yeah. He lets the fire extinguisher off so that it fills with, the passenger cabin fills with uh, dust or smoke or whatever it is, and, and they, they crash. crash. At high speed. All of those goons are dead, ultimately, including the woman who he'd stabbed earlier. She pulled the knife out of her side, and it ends up going in her head during the crash. 
As he's laying prone on his side, obviously the pressures on his body during the crash are less significant. Well, also, he was in the boot, wasn't he? He was thoroughly protected from being flung out. Presumably those Russians weren't wearing seatbelts, were they? Because that's mm. not the kind of thing you do if you're a, if you're a <laughs> Russian mafia goon. <laughs> and that's it. Yeah. So he's killed quite a fair few of them. Three or four. I can't remember how many. Three died in the, in the crash. Four back at his home. He goes back home now, doesn't he? Gets cleaned up. He calls his pop his old man, on the phone, uh, just to warn him, tell him that stuff could be coming. Now, I'm not sure the next bit was an artistic effect, or if he had... So he has some really beautiful jazz music down there in his basement. Whether there was actually one record that was designed to spark and start a fire, or had he just laden it with alcohol and poured, poured alcohol on it? I don't know. I presume it would have to be a special record. You have missed the point where he takes all of his family out of the basement and puts them in the car and tells yeah, them to go. Yeah, well, I want to burn his family too. So now they're aware of, you know, as they walk past the dead bodies, that their, dad, their father is a, a professional killer. He actually recounts a story. He's telling this to the four goons that he laid out, three of whom I think are dead, one of whom is dying. He puts yeah. them on the sofa in front of him. He tells a story of this guy called Alan stealing from government funds. He was cleaning this mess up and it was about to execute Alan, but took pity on him. And then years later, he went and followed up. To well, find he said, Alan, I'll give you one year to turn your life around. He goes and finds Alan living a blissfully happy life with a wife and kids. So and he was jealous. Him. Yeah. Yeah. He wanted to do the same thing. He wanted the <laughs> same life. So That was another touch why. of humour in the, in the movie, wasn't it, really? His reaction, his jealousy. So he wants to get out of this life himself. So clearly he has this new legend and he finds a wife and has these kids and has been living like this pretending, sort of play-acting, to be an ordinary accountant for all these years. He said years. it worked kind of, but it's not quite working now. So he set this, his old place on fire, and he steals his na- neighbour's Dodge Challenger, which his neighbour had been bragging about when they were discussing the mm-hmm. break-in. And he drives off in this big muscle car. Meanwhile, a couple of goons have gone to his old fella's old folks' home, and they think they're going to just be you know, executing or abducting this old guy. Son only has to say the two words heads up to his dad on the phone and his dad knows what's coming. Immediately, yeah. yeah. So when these two blokes show up, his father just kills them both with a, a sawn-off shotgun. Hidden under his blanket as he's watching cowboy movies or something like that. Now, Hutch, in his basement, in his secret compartment or whatever it was, he's got a load of gold bars, which he now uses to buy the business he works for from his father-in-law. Mm-hmm. And he then A-teams the factory, the light engineering. Yeah, factory. essentially he bear baits the whole factory for Russian bears, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah. He, he puts booby traps everywhere. Yeah. and It's a bear trap, basically. And it, then he goes and he so shoots... Bit, I didn't like that. I thought it was a bit home alone <laughs> Well, I think you're starting to see the film is not taking itself as seriously as you might. too seriously now, no. <laughs> You know, the CIA guy going down to the vaults to retrieve paper copies, you know, again, a bit, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, sorry, Richard, go on. Well, he now shoots his way into the vault that the Russians keep all their obshack in. He nabs a painting along the way, which I think is a Van Gogh, which he carries with him for much of the rest of the movie. Wow. I, th- I think that's his insurance policy or his payoff, so he can set up again after this is all over, you see. I assume that's what he's doing with that. What he does in the vaults is he pours a load of petrol into the sprinkler system. Clever. 
so that when he sets fire to all the stuff, to the money, the petrol sprays down on it. Uh, I know this is a clever moment, except it isn't, of course, how sprinklers work. We have to be clear about that. In uh, Have I talked about this on the podcast before, Paul? I don't know. Yeah. In Hollywood, when someone triggers the sprinklers, they go off in the entire building. Yeah. But actually, the way sprinklers work is very localised. If you look carefully at a sprinkler nozzle, you'll see a little metal thing, like a flower, that sprays the water out everywhere. Yeah. And above that, there's a little glass thing between the metal. It's usually red or see-through. Can you picture the centre of a sprinkler? Kind of, yeah. So what that glass thing is, is a very clever heat valve. It's just a, a glass tube, I think, with fluid in it. I don't know. Imagine a fire is underneath the sprinkler head. Mm-hmm. The heat would make the fluid in that glass ampule expand. I and see. And it would shatter the glass. And it's that little glass tube that's holding a valve closed. So ah. the shattering of the glass tube opens the valve on the sprinkler head. I see. And water comes out of that one sprinkler. But all of the other sprinklers that are not over fire don't set off because the glass is still intact. Notwithstanding, I would say this film is full of inspired and inventive forms of violence, isn't it? Certainly, yes. I mean, there's lots of it here, isn't there? Now, he, uh, he does that thing, he burns all their money, and then he goes to the club and he sits down. He, he wafts a wad of burnt money in Julian's face, doesn't he? And Julian is furious. Provocative. He's sitting there with a claim or mine on the table. And he's <laughs> And it's customer facing. It has a sign saying for was it uh, forward facing or whatever. Uh, no, it, it. Uh, enemy faces this way. Enemy facing, so, yeah. Which is Cust- what claim or Customer facing moment. You know, really? A genuine detail, yeah. You, do you know what a claim or mine is? No. So that that little thing that he has, that that curved pad thing. It's full of ball bearings at the front oh, and wow. explosives behind. You usually put it down in the ground on two spikes and put a trip wire somewhere. So, so it's only going to go one direction, basically. It goes one direction. Snipers might put it behind them so no one can sneak up behind them, for instance. be a common way of using them. Whoa. So they're real things, yeah. yeah. And the scatter shot obviously takes out... The damage, the shrapnel would be, would be horrific. In, in horrific. Maybe 20 yards, 30 yards? Kind of effect. I mean, I think outside of six to ten meters, you probably might survive, but you wouldn't like your odds of not being hit, right? Wow. So it forces Julian to talk with him for a moment, doesn't it? He, so he's got a moment to taunt him. Really, I think he wants to taunt Julian to mm. chase him. What yes. he does, though, he offers him to quit. He says, "Let's call it quits, and none of us get hurt, and you you can retire with." You can see you Julian's wounded, though, and like this ta- this works as long with the, the taunts that come with you know the burnt money and that kind of thing. So. He's twisting the knife two ways, isn't he? He is. Now, a car chase ensues. They all come out of the club. He's driving away in the Dodge Challenger. and He successfully draws them into his uh, booby-trapped factory, doesn't he? But he does seem to have bitten off more than he can chew, doesn't he? Yeah. He actually gets shot on the way, trying to get into the factory, even as he's pulling up. And they're all arriving. There's so many of them. But as that happens, someone appears at the window of the factory... And it's his guy, it's his mate from the ham radio. Radio ham radio. And he's shooting with a sniper rifle and killing Russians. And then his dad turns up, turns off with two shotguns, one in each hand. And they both give enough cover fire for him to get through the door, basically. (laughs) So the three of them now in the factory, 
use all of the booby traps to lay waste to the Ruskies in all kinds of different ways. All kinds of different ways, yeah. yeah. There's claymores going off, there's shotgun shells attached to mouse traps. There's steel rebar being fired <laughs> through the heads of a bunch of Russians. At one point, his ham radio mate uses his sniper rifle on three Triple Russians shot. in one shot. He goes, because they're all lined up, he just shoots sort of point blank range, kills them all immediately. It's, it's very inventive violence, as you say. He finally kills, kills Julian by attaching the claymore we saw earlier to a big sort of Lexan shield that was used, you know, with drilling bits or something. And he runs at him, doesn't he, and pulls the, the pin at the last moment. Did you mention the triple shot that the, his buddy does? The triple shot with a sniper rifle, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Crazy good. One of the highlights of the movie for me, actually. Great. I agree. I really enjoyed that. Yeah. I also liked the hand grenade underneath the hydraulic press. Have you seen the hydraulic press YouTube channel? No, no. Oh, Paul. I've seen hydraulic press channels, but I, is there one particularly you're talking about? Well, there's one guy that like, popularised it. That made the hydraulic. And I think he's Russian or Eastern European anyway. Interesting. I mean, I don't really like it when they put plastic toys in because they just crackle and they don't spurt out the holes. Right. Now, what's your favourite hydraulic press test material? The ones where they come squirting out the holes kind of thing. (laughs) Like, but it's usually just soft material. So I I think they've got to really think about something that you wouldn't expect to like squirt out, but does squirt out. Paper reacts really weird. Does in, it? Uh, in those things. Yeah, it explodes. It's very strong, isn't it? Well, this is it. You have to put a lot of pressure on it. But when it you do, it, it explodes. It goes... Wow. Yeah, it's astonishing. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so, and in the end, he kills Yulian by... Another claymore, the claymore. He straps it to a Lexan shield that presumably you use, you know, when you're drilling or lathing stuff. Runs at him and blows him up with the claymore mine. He's blown back by the shield, and it's it's uh, uh, and the conservation momentum isn't. And then he finds a kitten in the air ducts. We'd seen this earlier, hadn't we? We'd seen the office assistant or someone in the office, like poking a broom in the suspended ceiling, thinking they'd got some kind of pests. But it turns out to be a kitten in the air ducts, which is the kitten that we find he's holding in his police interview. I see. Which is where well, all a of metaphor. This ends, of course. He's it? managed to reclaim his sense of tenderness by by being a vigilante violent brute. Okay. And during this last bit of the police interview, both of the cops get a phone call at exactly the same time. Having said, who the fuck are you? You're a nobody. Whatever they're told, they kind of end the interview and let him go at that point. And I think we see them, don't we, at the end buying um buying a new house, presumably with Van Gogh money. And the wife asks, you know, is there a basement? <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, it's an old-fashioned subtext, you know. When there's a midlife crisis, how do men regain the love and admiration of their families? Uh, by becoming by more killing manly. a load of Russians. By becoming more manly again. And, you know, we, and we can name a lot of movies. Falling Down, Michael Douglas, very famous, you know. All the Bruce Willis stuff, Liam Nielsen stuff, it has real echoes of this, but it's managed to bring the genre into a modern-day perspective, I think, hasn't it? And he's brutish for a reason, isn't he? Like, it's not... It is quite grandstandy, but it's not showboaty, is it? And the great thing is, Russians and Russian billionaires are fair game again now. They are. They're incredibly fair game. No compunction against tarring them as the villains of the piece. (laughs) 
So you mentioned Quentin Tarantino. I do see I do see some Tarantino kind of crossovers here. I don't know if you see them or not. Like, well, it's very stylized, isn't it? Especially very stylized, when, yeah. I mean, they do these moments where they put it in slow motion, sort of Matrix style as well, really. Mm-hmm. It it lends an artistic eye, a painterly eye to the whole affair, doesn't it? That I think that, that's the kind of thing you get from a lot of Tarantino stuff. It is. And the four or five scripted humour moments have a kind of Tarantino-esque kind of feel to them, don't they? There's kind of, a darkness to the humour. Uh, uh, the Tarantino, well, he, he's, he just liberally spread through his films, didn't he? So, yeah, so I, it's kind of an update on the Middle-Aged Man Hero action movie, isn't it? A touch more thoughtful, a touch more justified, a touch less bombastic and jingoistic. Nonetheless, I kind of felt he kind of had a kind of slightly old, tainted feel to it. That's the only downside. No, you're right. It, it, it pulls the rug out of, out of you, really. Because at the start, it seems like him behaving with compassion in a sensitive way. Mm. It starts off being an important message of the movie, but by the end of it, he's just a badass who kills everybody. <laughs> Come on, the message should be, if middle-aged men are not getting the, deserve, uh, the respect they deserve from their the children, that's not right, okay? And they don't need to change. Hmm. What, what, you mean they don't need respect to their kids? They do need the children to respect them, but they don't need to change who they are in order to get it, you know? Or perhaps And they just don't let become go. stronger or better men, you know. Definitely not, you know. It's the wrong message to be sending, isn't it? But maybe maybe don't worry about getting respect for your teenage son, because he's never going to respect off, his yeah. dad, is he? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> get out of the fucking house, you know. I mean Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Uh, anyway, where were we? <laughs> so, don't let my beer go tough fucking luck, you know. I mean really, I mean it's just, I think, you know, yeah, sure, there is a patriarchy, you know, there is a dominant white middle class and upper white middle class patriarchy, okay? But I don't think it's equivalent to saying middle class men need to get the hard the hard deal they get in society. Oh, right. I'm sure some are wife beaters, you know, you know, I'm sure lots of them are bullies and alcoholics, but the majority of them aren't, you know, and they get, I tend to get, the, I tend to feel they get a bad rap in, you know, today's social media mob. The thing about the patriarchy is, insofar as it benefits a certain class of people, it isn't most men. It's mm. men of privilege and power. I, no. Yeah. I'm not saying that... I mean, it may be the case that at every level of society, men are better off than women. I think they I'm are, sure yeah. That, yeah. And well, it is true that every man can access a patriarchy, but it's very unlikely he will do. Most men don't benefit particularly from the patriarchy. Most men are tools of the patriarchy just as yes. much as women. The assertion that women are better off at every level, I'm not sure it's true, because women... Men, sorry, men are better off at every level. Uh, yeah, sorry, maybe I'm getting that. Maybe I've flipped your point. But actually, a woman of low status can... There's a path out for a woman that's not so easy for a low-status guy. For low-status women, there is a path out. But a, a low-status man... it does man involve is... commoditizing herself in some sort of way. Uh, of course, yeah, but... I feel that's less compromising than having to become like a criminal, Tough. which is which is the only way out for men is football or criminality. Criminality, yeah. yeah. So, and I, I felt this was affirming of those kind of ideas that men need to toughen up to be successful. Which is, I mean, do I object to genderized ideas of morality and honor? Essentially, this is honor, not a morality fault, isn't it? Should men be manly? Well, if they want to be, yeah, I guess, but. I just thought it was a little bit straight-jacketed in what it showed as a man could be. That's all I'm saying. 
Not a bad movie. But it is a bit of fun. I didn't mind watching it one bit. It, it is. And I'm sick of seeing Bruce Willis in this kind of stuff and, of course, Liam Nielsen. So it was a welcome change. A new face on the heroic middle-aged man scene. So, so yeah. So should we get to scores? Acting, then. Because there's some big <laughs> names in here. Amazing. Loved it. Bob is great. Bob is, is fantastic. Uh, the guy playing Yulian, Alexei Serebryakov, I think his yeah. name is. Menacing, surely. I'm trying to think of the name. Who do you remind me of? Do you know uh, My Own Private Idaho? What's it called? Christopher Christopher Walken. He had a kind of Christopher Walken. Christopher Walken esque, yeah, yeah. Yeah, kind of feel to him. So weird but scary. Michael Ironside and Christopher Lloyd both looking really old, honestly. Worryingly yeah. old. <laughs> Aren't we all these days? Uh, <laughs> yeah. hey, I loved it. Though. Great acting. I'm gonna I'm gonna jump in here and say it, uh, an eight point five. I'll give it an eight, certainly, for Bob's. They didn't dedication. ask much, but what they did they did particularly well, I think. Right, scripting, plot. Apart from the fact that it turns into a bog-standard action movie. Well, I think we have to score action later on. But... Okay, okay. So uh, let's let's just go seven. I mean, it's above average, but it's not brilliant. Yeah, I would say the plot was maybe just a little too simple. Yeah, yeah. He was a bit of a can-do-anything kind of guy, and nothing stopped him, did he? He got thrown through a bus window at one point. And was in a car accident. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah and was yeah, stabbed yeah. and was shot. And he's still fine. <laughs> there was just a bit too much plot on. I think any one of those would have probably ended the career of most people. <laughs> the only twists were 18 twists where he comes up against, you know, formidable adversaries. There was nothing really that kind of sent the plot skew with sentence down tangents he had to recover from. So a six from me. Okay. Okay. Action. This is great. It's very post-Matrix, but it's very dedicated and authentic. So it's got to be an eight, eight and a half, maybe. I love the fights. Really good. I thought just generally, you know, uh, it had a nice rhythm, you know, to to the action sequences, interspersed nicely with things that weren't pinging around and flying around the screen. Uh, but particularly the fight scenes, I thought were really, really well choreographed. So I'm going to give it a nine. Yay. Yeah. Is that everything then, Paul? Are we going straight to overall? Let's go overall on this, because I think we've had a grumble about... Let's put our overalls on. It's gender and politics. Yeah, this is good, isn't it? I'll give 7.5. 7. I'm going to go 8, a little bit stronger. It's a really, really, really good movie. Uh, very lightweight, doesn't require a lot of your thought. And just engrossing and entertaining for a full 90 minutes. So yeah, there we I go. recommend, a strong Available recommend. on Netflix right now. And, Paul... Uh, what was the product that you were boosting at me earlier? Trip drink? Trip. I was slurring my words, I think, earlier. Uh, yeah, trip. Not sponsored uh, yet, but after yet. Paul has stumbled his way through the podcast, I imagine <laughs> they'll be knocking our doors down. Look, it uh, says take no more than 70 milligrams a day. I'm only on 45, so. Oh, right. Well, you've got plenty of headroom. But Do only, not- Paul, a few minutes of the day left to drink it all in. <laughs> Paul, what movies are you giving right. me to choose from? Okay, look, okay, I had to dig around and I couldn't really, I didn't really have time to work out which was which. So I'm just going to throw this one at you and see how it splats, okay? Right. Platform or the platform. Platform or the platform. Cursory investigation shows there are at least three or four movies so named. There's one of which I'm thinking of, but I can't really describe it to you. So platform or the platform is your number one. Although it is a choice between four. Because we've done Nobody this week, I thought we'd hop back and suggest Mr. Nobody as another choice. Okay. Yes. I actually can't read my writing here. I'm really sorry. Triangle of... Triangle of... Something. 
Triangle of Skulls? Glass? Triangle of Sadness? Is that it? Yes, thank you. Triangle of Sadness. Richard can read my writing not seeing it better than I can with it in front of him. Okay, that's your third choice, Richard. Okay, finally. The fourth dimension. Apparently we can't see that. No, you can't see the fourth dimension because it's it's time, time, isn't it? it? Yeah, yeah. But the film, The Fourth Dimension. (laughs) (laughs) I left it for you. I was hoping you were going to pick it up. Right, so there you go. Platform of the platform. Mr. Nobody. Triangle of Sadness, I know what it's called. Thank you, Richard. Or the fourth dimension, which we can't see. Well, let's just deal with the platform problem. Yeah. Platform, I think, is the Spanish film. Although, no. That's the the one I want you to do, the Spanish one. It's the Spanish film that involves... A table of food falling yes. through progressive layers of oppression yes. yes. as a metaphor for society, trickle-down economics and society and capitalism. Ah. It's interesting. I'm sure we talk a lot about it. It's quite unpleasant because there's a lot okay. of food being sort of wasted. What uh, what movie did we see by uh, J.G. Ballard? that had Similar idea. Yeah. High Rise. High Rise, wasn't it? Yeah. Then there's Platform, which uh, there's a Chinese film oh. about a Chinese theatre group or something. Right. Uh, during changes in... If we want to go Chinese, I've got hundreds of Chinese movies we can watch. Okay. So let's not choose that for Chinese, if that's okay, Richard. Okay. So that's the platform problem, Del. Those are the only two, though, I think. Mr. Nobody is your other choice. And Mr. Nobody, Jared Leto, tempting. But out of all of those, the one I really want to try is Triangle of Sadness. Yeah! So I wanted you to pick. Oh, well, okay, good. We do have to pay for it, though. Still, save your money up. And watch <laughs> Triangle of Sadness for us. So until the next time, thank you. Join us next time for Series 3, Episode 41. Ciao for now. See you on the next one. Thank you.